Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. We are still in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. South Carolina. I have a interesting true crime story today. And I have an interesting paranormal story today. I also have an interesting story really? to tell you. Tell me. So, I don't know. I think this happens with a lot of people. I've always had insomnia, but... Um, it's gotten a lot worse since we've been quarantined and I've been pretty much up to like anywhere from 9am to 11am almost every night now. So I get like two, three hours of sleep before I wake up because I have to start my day at some point. Um, <laughs> and late at night or early in the morning, depending on how you think of it the other night, I kept hearing this weird noise outside my bedroom window which is on the second story that's kind of terrifying uh so i was like what the hell and i'm just like what is that noise and then eventually like i look and i'm like maybe it's a squirrel because we did have that squirrel if you remember (laughs) come visit us the one time it wasn't a squirrel it was a fucking raccoon oh my god (laughs) i don't know how it got up there because raccoons are like big yeah fat things and this thing was very very fat and um he was so cute, but I wanted him to go away and stop scratching at the window because I'm not going to let him in. As much <laughs> as I in. want to keep him for a pet, I'm not letting him in this house. <laughs> wow. What did, did he eventually just go away? He eventually left. Yeah. He was like, no, no, no entree vous. Yeah. It was like really, it was during the big storm that we had um, with all the wind and the, yeah. And he was like this big ass raccoon's like hanging on for dear yeah. life. Yeah. He was just sitting on top of my roof and was like, hey, let me in your house. It's windy and cold. Yeah. Do you have trash I can eat? I'm really hungry. <laughs> um, well, I, I have some uh, fun, weird laws from South Carolina. Nothing involving raccoons. Okay. But, Unfortunately, no raccoons. But. Uh, so, Eden, if you wanted to get your raccoon friend immortalized on your skin as a tattoo, mm-hmm. that would be illegal in South Carolina. Yeah, I learned about the whole tattoo with, like, the technical term is cremains, even though I hate that word. Ooh. But, yeah, like, getting your animal's ashes, like, tattooed into you. That's intense love. Yeah, which is just bizarre, but, yeah. Well, regardless of whether you mix in those ashes or not, uh, while tattoos are now technically legal in South Carolina, the law still on the books. Apparently, a lot of outdated laws are still on the books in South Carolina. Uh, that's in a lot of states. Uh, they have some great ones, though, and it really speaks, I think, to South Carolina's past. For example, horses may not be kept in bathtubs. All right. Um, then I'm going to have to find a new sleeping place for my horse. <laughs> Uh, Another one I thought was kind of interesting, again, speaks to the past. When you approach a four-way intersection or a blind intersection, and you're not in a vehicle that has a horse attached to it, so you're not riding a horse, you're not in a horse-drawn carriage, you must stop 100 feet from the intersection and discharge a firearm into the air to warn the people who may be on horses. All right. That's kind of similar to a law in Pennsylvania that's still on the books. If you are um, riding your carriage and um, like another, uh, like a car is coming by and the horse gets spooked, the person who is driving the car needs to disassemble the car and hide it until the horse is not spooked anymore. What? Yep. (laughs) It's also illegal to sleep on your refrigerator. 
Well, I mean, I, I support that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, this one's actually kind of hilarious. So they have a lot of Sunday laws in South Carolina. One of them is that you can't work on a Sunday. Okay. Another one is that every adult must bring a rifle to church on Sundays <laughs> in order to ward off Indian attacks. So. Whoa. Packing heat, praising Jesus. Gotcha. Well, that's the Republican Party in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, on Sundays, you can't sell anything except for light bulbs. Okay. Because because God said, let there be light? Pretty much. All right. You must be 18 years old or a legal adult in order to play pinball. Okay. That makes a very interesting uh They don't arcade. want kids playing with balls, I guess. I mean, salacious. Yes. Uh, this is a solid law. It's illegal to urinate in any body of water in a park. Okay, that's actually a good law, but I don't know how people are going to enforce that because, I mean, you can't really tell when someone's peeing in the water unless they have that look on their face. <laughs> Can you imagine that citation? <laughs> the fire department is within its legal rights to blow up your house. <laughs> you know, just in case. <laughs> Why would they need to blow up your house? Excuse me, this building's in the way. I'm going to have to blow it up. Uh, going back to horses, because there's a lot of horse laws. All right. Horses must wear pants at all times. Pants? Yep, just do, with pants. Do they make horse pants? That's a great question. Horse chaps? <laughs> that is weird. It is very weird. And do they mean pants like our way of saying pants? Meaning like, you know, the things that you... One leg at a time? Yeah. Four le- So, okay. Does a horse wear pants on its front legs or its back legs or all legs? I don't know. That's a, that's a quandary. But then also, it could mean pants in like the British way. Like panties? Like underwear, yeah. Undies? Food for thought. Yeah. Speaking of food for thought, this is very specific, and I feel like it's probably situational. If you visit Magnolia Street Cemetery, do not eat or enjoy a ripe, juicy watermelon, because that is illegal there. Okay, no watermelon in the cemetery, you guys. You heard (laughs) it here first. And then this is kind of in line with our podcast. It's against the law and also a capital offense. To inadvertently kill somebody while trying to commit suicide yourself. Okay. I would assume in general killing somebody is probably (laughs) yeah, because even committing suicide is technically a crime. Yeah, but if you accidentally kill somebody else while you're trying to kill yourself, yeah, you're gonna be sentenced to death. So interesting. It'll work out for you in the end, I guess. I guess you'll get what you wanted. Is that the end of your list? That's the end of my list. Okay, I liked it. It was cool. Okay, Nicole, I think that you have a story for me. I do. So our stop today is the largest city in South Carolina, Charleston. Okay. Which I believe you said you love. It's a very beautiful city. Yes, Charleston is amazing. Yeah, I enjoyed all of the scenic palm trees and very, very beautiful looking city. A lot of history too. Have you been there? No. Okay. Only in my mind and on the internets. Definitely go. Uh, so Charleston's located near the midpoint on South Carolina's coast, and it enjoys really mild winters and hot, humid summers thanks to its rainy subtropical climate. So it sounds like an ideal place to visit, like in the wintertime. Oh, yeah. Be like a snowbird, get someplace warmer. Founded in 1670 and named in honor of King Charles II of England, the city is steeped in American history and is known today for its booming tourism industry. And Charleston really does have something for everyone. 
History buffs can visit historical spots from the American Revolution and the Civil War, take a horse-drawn carriage ride past Rainbow Row, which is a really cool street of brightly Rainbow painted. Rainbow Row is really cool. Yeah. Did you go there? Yeah. It's like these brightly painted Georgian row homes. They're beautiful. That's the thing that I really love about Charleston is that like each street has its own personality, or at least the major ones do. They're just, they're beautiful. Everything's very colorful and there's like palm trees lining everything. It's great. Kind of embracing that like tropical feel, huh? Oh yeah. And it feels very artsy too. And it also just feels very Southern. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, good. It's probably like the number one or two place that I think of when I think of like places that just feel completely like the South. Charleston and, oh my God, why can't I think of it? Savannah. Uh, well, Savannah, I guess, yeah, too. Um, but also, New Orleans. New Orleans. Yes. Fair. That was that was going to be my other suggestion for you. Yes. I have trouble thinking of names on this podcast all the damn time. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the sleep deprivation. You can also visit one of the nearby plantations. Apparently, there's a lot of plantations within day there's tripping a lot. of Charleston. If you're a foodie, you can enjoy the rich culinary traditions that the city has to offer. They range from innovative new southern cuisine, uh, classic low country cooking, plentiful seafood and oyster dishes, and unique food offerings like whole hog barbecue with Carolina gold sauce. They have great food. Have you ever had the Carolina gold sauce? I don't think so. It's really good. It's like a mustard-based barbecue. Huh, okay. So if you're like not somebody who's fond of like ketchup-based sauces, Carolina gold is the way to go. Well, when I make my barbecue, uh, it normally has ketchup and mustard in it because like the ketchup makes it a little on the sweet side and then the mustard gives it like that tang or spice if you're using like, the brown mustard. Fair, fair. I enjoy pork with mustard. So it's like a very German thing. So I yeah. love that like South Carolina is like, we have a lot of German influence and uh, <laughs> our BBQ sauce is mustard. Nice. Uh, everyone can explore the city's art galleries uh, and museums. There's a ton of them. That's why probably why it feels so artsy when you're there. Yeah. There's tons of great shopping. Not to mention there's beautiful beaches nearby like Folly Beach or Isle of Palms. But my story is going to take us to a darker period of Charleston's past. Ooh. Digging in deep. Now, during the 19th century, Charleston was a major hub of the American slave trade. And it was the only major American city where a majority of its residents were actually slaves. Wow. I mean, it is the South, so... Yeah, but in Charleston, it was more than 50% of the city. Holy crap. Okay. Yeah. So most of the people who lived there were not free. They were they were slaves. Part of it had to do with just the nature of Charleston's economy, but also had to do with some of the social organization that they had in the city. So many enslaved residents in Charleston left a very deep impact both socially and economically on the city's life. It was a place where the middle class and social mobility were virtually non-existent, unlike other parts of the country. And this is mostly because a handful of wealthy and powerful white slaveholding oligarchs controlled a majority of the city's wealth. Something like 90 different families controlled like 97% of the wealth in Charleston during the 18th century. You did have some free people, both white and black, but largely they couldn't better themselves economically because they were up against free slave labor. Huh, okay, yeah. So this very much speaks to the predicament that uh, the focus of my story will find themselves in later. But it's in this time of great social and economic inequality that we find a woman named Lavinia Fisher, who would eventually become America's first female serial killer. Lavinia Fisher was who I did my original story on for this podcast. Really? Yeah. 
Well, this is going to be true old hat for you then. Yeah, it actually will be. <laughs> that's all right, though. Yeah, it was in Charleston. That's right. Okay. So let me start off by saying there's a lot of folklore and a lot of hearsay around Lavinia Fisher. It's very much it's that was the whole thing when the original um, premise for our podcast was actually this was the original but then we switched to a different one and that one was going to be that we would talk about anything from true crime paranormal uh folklore legends anything creepy or anything describing the darker side of humanity and mine was like i was like starting my intro with this is part true crime part paranormal and part folklore (laughs) (laughs) That does does sum up uh, Lavinia Fisher's story pretty well. I'm not going to touch so much on the paranormal. I'm mostly going to stick with the difference between folklore and the actual facts. I was honestly only able to find like one little sentence about the haunting anyway. So Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, let me start off with telling you a little bit about Lavinia and then I'll jump into the legend surrounding her. Lavinia was born in... 1793 and raised in Charleston, much of the info about her early life has been lost. We don't even know what her maiden name was. But we do know that by the mid-1810s, she had grown into a very beautiful woman and had married a man named John Fisher. Together, the Fishers ran a small hotel called Six Mile Wayfarer House, which was, you guessed it, about six miles from Charleston. I wrote the exact same thing. (laughs) It's like we know each other really well. I still have my notes. And that was, and it's like, well, actually, I didn't say that with the, with the six mile uh, Wayfarer House, but the next one that was like the five mile Wayfarer House or whatever, I was just like, yep, you guessed it. (laughs) They can't think of any interesting names. Now, according to legend, the Fisher's Hotel was very popular with travelers, partially due to its location and partially due to the beautiful and charismatic Lavinia. When weary travels would arrive at the hotel, Lavinia would invite the men to dinner. During dinner, she would charm the men and ask them questions about their destination and their occupation. Often the questions would revolve around how successful the men were and if they were carrying any goods with them. Gee, not at all suspicious. Not at all. After the meal, Lavinia would offer the men a cup of soothing tea as a nightcap. The men would drink the tea and retire to their rooms where they'd slip into a deep sleep. Don't drink the tea. (laughs) Lavinia's special tea was infused with oleander, which is a poisonous plant. And while the men slept, her husband John would slip into their rooms and slit their throats. Some sources state that the Fishers built a special trap door under the bed so that John (laughs) could actually drop the bodies through the basement so he could dismember them and bury them. Other sources said he would drop sleeping men there and murder them in the basement. There's also the uh, the pit of spikes thing too. I didn't come across this pit of spikes. Yeah. Um. Another thing that they said was that like there was the trapdoor lever like on the bed, so like the person would fall, I guess, with the bed too, and fall into a pit of spikes. Mm. That just seems like I wrote in my notes when I did this one uh, that it was very much like dick dastardly or uh snidely whiplash i could just imagine him like twirling his handlebar mustache you know <laughs> now after john fisher had disposed of the body they would go through the dead man's belongings keeping any cash and valuables and offloading any goods that the travelers had periodically rumors circulated about travelers disappearing along the road to charleston who were last seen at or near the six mile wayfarer house But John and Lavinia's popularity among their neighbors and the local community deflected suspicion from them. According to folklore, the Fishers' downfall started when a man named John Peoples decided to stop at their hotel while traveling to Charleston from Georgia. 
Lavinia joined Peoples for dinner and then offered him after-meal tea. Peoples, however, didn't like to drink tea, but he accepted it because he didn't want to seem rude. That was his first mistake. (laughs) He managed to discreetly dump the tea out while Lavinia wasn't looking. She continued to entertain him, asking him questions about himself and his occupation, and Peoples grew uncomfortable, naturally, and excused himself to his room for the night. Already a little suspicious of his hosts, he decided to sleep in a chair by the door rather than the comfy bed. Later, Peoples awoke to a loud noise and saw the bed drop through a trap door in the floor. Yep. The frightened Peoples quickly made an escape through the window and rushed to alert local authorities. When the sheriff showed up with a posse, they quickly arrested John and Lavinia Fisher and searched the hotel. Supposedly, they found more than 100 bodies buried under the inn. Holy shit, I didn't have that in my notes. The two were quickly tried and sentenced to death. According to legend, Lavinia's execution was quite the spectacle. She wore her wedding dress to the gallows in the hopes of convincing one of the men in the crowd to marry her, thus saving her from death because it was illegal to kill or hang a married woman. Which is just insane. It's also not true. Oh, it's also not true. (laughs) It's also not true. Okay. Um, That is not a law. It's never been a law. Uh, There are laws that save women from execution if they are pregnant under the assumption that that child is innocent. However, she would usually have been executed shortly after giving birth. But marriage will never save a lady from the gallows. When Lavinia failed to seduce any of the guys in the crowd to take her as a bride, she reluctantly climbed the gallows. With the hangman's noose around her neck, her last words were supposedly, quote, If any of you have a message for the devil, tell me now, for I shall be seeing him shortly. That was the exact reason I did this, (laughs) because I was like, that is the craziest last words. Then, if it couldn't get any crazier... Determined to leave the world on her own terms, Lavinia leapt from the gallows and killed herself before she could be hanged. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Yeah. But this is all possibly not true. It could just be part of the legend as well. Exactly. Um, Of course, it's crazy and salacious and and absolutely like, what? Oh, yeah. Because it's all myth. None of that happened. So after I read this amazing story and I was like, oh, this is going to be great. I can tell Eden about it. Little did I know he already knew about it, but also little did I know that it was all pretty much folklore. A lot of it. It's highly exaggerated. So I dug a little deeper and what I found was that the whole story about Lavinia's arrest and execution changes quite considerably when you actually look at contemporaneous sources. Yeah. So here's what happened according to court records and news reports from 1818 through 1820. John and Lavinia Fisher did indeed operate the Six Mile Wayfarer house, and the hotel was very successful. However, the road that ran past their hotel was hunting grounds for a group of unidentified highwaymen who had robbed travelers during the the late 1810s. There was speculation that these highwaymen used some of the hotels and houses in the neighborhood, specifically Six Mile Wayfarer house and another inn, the Five Mile house, as home bases for their criminal activity. Some people also said that John Fisher was part of the band, or at least he may have fenced some of the goods that the highwaymen took from travelers. In 1819, Colonel N.G. Cleary, the local sheriff, received a bench warrant to hunt down the highwaymen who were targeting the neighborhood around the Six Mile Wayfarer house. So he gathered up a posse and hit the road. The posse first headed to the Five Mile house, one of the supposed bases of operations for the highwaymen. 
They confronted the occupants and gave them 15 minutes to vacate the house. Then the posse burnt the house down to the ground. Yep. Seems a little dramatic. It does. Most of the people at the Six Mile Wayfarer house fled after seeing the smoke rise from where the Fifth Mile house had been and a posse headed in their direction. Understandably. Yeah. Girl, get the hell out. A few men who remained were promptly evicted when the posse arrived. Feeling that they had run the highwaymen out of their bases, the posse decided, you know what? That's enough for one night. Let's head back to Charleston. But to make sure that the evicted occupants didn't return to the Six Mile Wayfarer house, they left one guy, a man named David Ross, behind to guard it. The next morning, two members of the highway robbers showed up and dragged Ross Poor outside. David Ross. David Ross. When I was writing that, I kept almost writing David Lee Roth. It was terrible. <laughs> Don't listen to music while you research a story. Probably not a good idea. <laughs> uh, so the next morning, two members of the highway robbers show up, drag Ross outside, where he's confronted by six or eight or possibly 12 members of the gang. The numbers unclear. really change. They do. And this is his telling of what happened as well. He said that the gang among the gang members as well were John and Lavinia Fisher. According to Ross, the men started to beat him and he looked to Lavinia for help. He said that instead of helping him, Livinia choked him and then smashed his head through a window of the hotel. Ross managed to escape somehow, but not before the gang had managed to steal $40 from him. Colonel Cleary got a warrant for the Fishers and the other men that Ross had identified and set out to arrest them for assault and robbery. The Fishers and the other men gave up without a fight when Colonel Cleary appeared and all were taken to jail in Charleston. Oh, you're not going to mention the you damned infernal rascal part? I don't know the damned infernal rascal part. That didn't pop up in oh, the uh, news okay. clips. Apparently, um, I forget whoever it was. Um, I think it was David. Um, Lavinia like shouted at him, you damned infernal rascal, like something, something, something. I'm going to kill you pretty much. But it that- was hysterical because it's like damned infernal rascal. No one freaking <laughs> talks like that. So authorities investigated the Six Mile Wayfarer house property. They did not find 100 bodies, but they did find two bodies. They were buried about 200 yards from the house, and they believed that they were the bodies of a white man and a black woman who had been dead for at least two years. However, authorities couldn't tie the bodies directly to the Fishers since it was far enough away from the inn on a highly trafficked road, and just the nature of their popular hotel made it a little difficult to say, yep, you totally did it. Plus, they couldn't find any other physical evidence of murder at the house. Yeah. So not the dramatic, insane trapdoor bed scenario, hundreds of bodies that exactly the claim was. In Charleston, the Fishers and the co-owner of the Six Mile Wayfarer house, a man named William Hayward, were charged with assault with intent to murder. But at trial, they were sentenced for highway robbery, which, surprise, was a capital offense. Mm hmm. Other members of the gang were charged with lesser crimes or just outright released. The Fishers appealed their sentence. While they awaited the results of their appeal, they were housed together in the local jail due to their marriage. John and Lavinia decided, we need a backup plan. And their backup plan consisted of digging a hole under the window so they could fit through. And then they crafted a rope out of linens. Yep. I love that part. It's like, let's tie a bunch of clothes together or bed sheets. <laughs> Get out of here. Classic. So John makes it safely out, but the rope breaks before Lavinia could escape. 
Refusing to leave his wife in prison, John goes into hiding, and he tries to gather enough funds to bribe the local jailer to release her. Unfortunately, when he returned to the jail with the bribe, he was recaptured, and both the Fishers were kept under much tighter security within the jail. Huh. See, the way that I heard it was that he didn't want to leave his wife, uh, so he just turned himself back in. That was what I had come across and I did the research. Well, so him turning himself back in, he did go back to the jail, but he actually had a bribe. Okay. Because while they were being housed in the jail, uh, they became aware of another man who was released because he basically bribed the jailer. Okay. And it was something like $600, which if you think about it in like the 18, it's a lot, it's a lot of money. So John thought maybe he had enough and he went back for her. I also read a source where he didn't go back to the jail. He was actually apprehended. Oh. Um, he was like hiding under a overturned boat. That's <laughs> and, weird. And uh, authorities found him. Yeah. Because so. what I had heard is that he loved Lavinia so much that he couldn't leave her after he escaped. And he just went back and was like, arrest me again. Let me be with my wife. And then I even wrote a joke because I guess the family that slays, t- slays together stays together. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to think that he probably did go back with a bribe because again, this is like a Charleston that is like pretty much corrupt as heck run by money. It's like these super wealthy families who control everything. Yeah. And I can imagine somebody who works as a jailer getting t- very tempted to release or let inmates slip away Yeah, with, you know, some, for some extra cash. Yeah. I don't know how much the 600, what you said it was $600. Yeah. One of the sources said $600. Yeah. Which is, a lot, but I did actually do some inflation calculation for my story because I was talking about some of the people that they robbed on the highway. Mm-hmm. And um, there was one guy that had um, a little over $10. His name was James Addison that they robbed. Uh, it would be around $165 today. So that's only $10. Yeah, so you imagine like... And then a man named John Brown, yet another John, because there's not enough of him in this story. <laughs> uh, he was robbed uh, of $140, which is a whopping... $2,300 today. Yeah, so you figure like $600 back then is probably a couple grand. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because so. if 140 is 2300 that's a lot. Looking at like 10 plus grand. Mm-hmm. It's enough for so many horses. Uh- <laughs> and bathtubs to put them in. <laughs> bathtubs to put them in. <laughs> Leave it on the edge. So while the Fishers are again in jail... Under tighter security, they find out that their appeal was rejected in 1820, and their execution was scheduled for February 18th, 1820. Uh, Most of the accounts said that John had accepted his fate because he knew how corrupt it was. Yeah. And he did continue to proclaim his innocence, stating he was not a highwayman, that he had never had didn't have anything to do with the gang, and that he was framed for the crime. Lavinia, however, remained convinced she would receive a pardon from the governor, even refusing to climb the gallows at her execution. Eventually, she was forced up and hanged after her husband. She was not wearing her wedding dress. Ah, boo. I did find a source that was kind of interesting. It was like the rumor about her wearing a wedding dress comes from the fact that she was probably wearing like a white shift. Yeah. And that's what they would basically hang people in was like their underwear. Yeah. It's kind of messed up. But that's where the wedding dress myth comes from. I mean, that's kind of like a walk of shame to your death. Shame. (laughs) (laughs) I, that was the thing that I really loved about this story when I found it was 
just the sheer insanity of her going in her wedding dress and be like, someone marry me so I don't have to die. And then just being like, well, anyone have anything to say to the devil? Okay, going to jump now and kill myself. Laters. Uh, so both the Fishers were buried in a potter's field. However, the whole story of their arrest and conviction seems very suspicious. I don't know if you came across this fantastic book by former homicide investigator Bruce Orr. Yes. Okay. I read this book and it was awesome. I read it too. So in Bruce Orr's book, he speculates that the Fishers were indeed framed and he comes up with a couple different theories as to why and some additional details. Now, Orr found documents that are basically Colonel Cleary, that guy who had the posse and arrested them. He had to defend himself in several newspapers because I guess John's accusation of being framed, he fingered Colonel Cleary as the guy who framed him. So for example, when witnesses who had been robbed along the road were called to see if they could identify the men who robbed them from those who were arrested at Six Mile Wayfarer House, Cleary would shuffle the men in and ask them if they recognized them, have them say a couple lines, your typical lineup stuff. Yeah. When it was... John Fisher and William Hayward's turn, he called them in by name, something he didn't do with the other suspects. Cleary's goal was to quickly and efficiently wrap up this highway robbery investigation. And he figured calling out Fisher and Hayward as likely suspects would sway witnesses. Now, why did Cleary decide to do this? Well, he was up for re-election as the sheriff. Hmm. 1820 was an election year, and he thought that if he could frame John Fisher, which was easy and convenient for him at the time, it would show that he was effectively wrapping up this highway robbery case and that the roads around Charleston were safe yet yet again thanks to him. Yeah. Or also points out that some of the political corruption in the wealthier classes in Charleston may also have played a part in John and Lavinia's conviction. He mentions that it's odd that the mob... Okay, posse, but let's be real, a mob mm-hmm. burned down Five Mile House, which yeah. is super extreme. Like, why would you burn it down? Wouldn't you just arrest the people that were there and bring them in? Exactly. But they burned it down. I mean, yeah, this is like vigilante justice. Very much so. Yeah. And then when they get to Six Mile Wayfarer House, they arrest all the owners, and those are the only people who are convicted of these weird charges. Well, according to my notes... It was the fact that they saw the smoke from the five mile house and were just like, we're not having the house burned down. We'll just go. That's interesting take on it. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because same story, Mm -hmm. a lot of the same notes, but also some different notes. So that just goes to show how much of this is just legend Mm -hmm. and how much of it changes. Well, plus like a lot of the, like you don't have details on like their motivation to leave in court records and things. It's just the simple fact of they agreed and were taken without, you know, any altercation. The only like historical thing that I could find to give any of this credence was David's testimony. Testimony. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It was interesting because or points out like when you look at the court records, initially they're charged with. Uh, assault with intent to murder yes but somewhere along the way it changes to the the judge sentencing them to highway Highway robbery robbery. which is weird because it's a conviction that leads to the death Death penalty penalty. and so the idea that it's only these like owners of this successful inn who are getting killed and when you are convicted of a capital crime 
your property either is reverted to the state mm-hmm. or it's put up for auction. Just like witch trials. Mm-hmm. So Orr's take on it is that the reason this all went down the first place, aside from Clear- Colonel Cleary needing to up his chances in the upcoming election, was that the governor at the time wanted the property that the six and five mile houses were on so that it could be used for a new naval base. Okay. Perhaps not so coincidentally, the Charleston Naval Hospital in North Charleston sits on the land that was once occupied by the Six Mile House today. Hmm. Yeah, a little suspicious. Yep. So, Eden, you're familiar with this, which is awesome. What do you think is the true story here? I know what I think, but I'm curious to hear what you think. Uh, I don't think a lot of it happened, but in a perfect world in my head, it all did happen. Trapdoor, spikes, and all. Definitely wedding dresses being worn because that just makes for the better story. So that's what I want to believe happened. Mm -hmm. But I have a feeling it was probably a whole lot more mundane than that. And you brought up some good points on why they possibly were framed. Yeah, it was just a very bizarre story, which, like I said, drew me to it. And I'm sure that's also what drew you to it, Mm -hmm. too. For sure. There's always, whenever I do any story, there's always this defining moment when searching that's just like, oh, this sounds amazing. I want to do this. There's always one thing that really catches me. And for me, it was not only trap doors, but also the nuttiness of wearing your wedding dress to your execution and saying, you know, does anyone have a message for the devil? (laughs) Like, it was just larger than life crazy. I agree. I also think the thing that I found extremely compelling about this story is that it's very um, has has these like mechanics at work behind the scenes that are very evocative of antebellum. Yes. And especially the society in Charleston, just reading about how, you know, in this city where over half the people are enslaved, this culture kind of develops where, you know, if you're wealthy and elite, like you don't work. Why would you? You have slaves do it for you. And it kind of is in my mind sort of like anti-American, but then being someone who grew up in the Northeast where it's like, yeah, if you work hard, you'll get ahead. Mm -hmm. It's looking at this, you know, time capsule of a place where, Hey, even if you worked hard, you wouldn't get ahead because you couldn't get ahead because of just the economic situation of trying to have social mobility in a culture where you don't want social mobility because then how do you justify owning other people? Yeah. So, I very much think that the fishes were framed and I think part of their frame job totally makes sense. Yeah. Being like we want this. We're just going to, who are they? They're not anybody important. And it certainly wouldn't they're be a the little, first time that this happened. Yeah. And they're a little bit uppity. It's like, if you think about it, like owning an inn is some way that you can actually have social mobility. And then mm-hmm. you compound that by the fact that every account I read was like Lavinia was gorgeous and she was really charming and people yeah. liked her. I, I feel like that made her a natural target. Absolutely. For, you know, jealous women. Yeah. People are jealous. Absolutely. And you figure that's also probably why the rumors about what happened and how they killed all those people and there's a trap door and she's poisoning people with oleander tea. Yep. I think that's kind of where it all comes from. Fun facts about oleander. Every inch of it is poisonous. Mm. Every last bit of it. Also, it grows like crazy everywhere that I know of in the South. Does it even have any medicinal properties? 
I thought it was just like a straight up poison. I think it's pretty much just deadly. It's beautiful and deadly. That was the other thing just I thought like was kind of. No. <laughs> <laughs> that was the other thing I was kind of like, wait, it's a tea to make them sleep. Wouldn't Oleander just like strip kill them? Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe if it's like such a small dose, it might just put you in a coma. I don't know. I, I really don't know. Um, one thing I would also like to say is I did find the damned infernal rascal part. Oh, yeah. So here's Tell what I had. Um, the part where they shoved his head through the window before uh, the other two joined in and began whipping him. Uh, David managed to escape somehow and run as far as the four mile house. Because, yes, there's more of them with these names mm-hmm. um, before being shot. He was uh, nearly in town when he saw them following him and Lavinia shouted, and I'm not kidding, this is on the actual report. You damned infernal rascal. If I ever catch you, I will give you a hundred lashes. Oh my. Yes, which just doesn't sound like the way people speak. Maybe that's how they spoke back then. I don't know. But it just sounds really nuts. Sounds ginned up yeah, to me. Exactly. So, I mean, that's probably another point for you uh, <laughs> with the believing that they're not actually these vicious killers yeah i think there is something a little bit like interesting about the romantic idea of like a vicious gang of highwaymen but i also think it's interesting too that like when you type in like first female serial killer into google lavinia comes up she comes up and it's like this woman probably didn't kill anybody in her entire life even before or maybe not before jane toppin or something i think toppin yeah Yeah. the poisoner yeah yeah because she is like notoriously known as the first female serial killer, mm-hmm. but then Lavinia is also the first rumored female serial killer. Yeah, there's a lot of weird rumors about like Lavinia's like uh, kind of notorious claims to fame. Like she was the first woman executed in the U.S. Yep. That's not true. So I mean, with this story, just take it, you know, with a grain of salt. Because uh, take with a tablespoon of salt, y'all. Yeah, you know, just use the entire shaker, just down that entire shaker, because. I hope you like your meal salty. Yeah, there's a lot of salt going on. <laughs> well, my sources for this week's story were Wikipedia, CharlestonCVB.com, Murderpedia.com, Six Miles to Charleston, The True Story of John and Lavinia Fisher by Bruce Orr, LegendsOfAmerica.com, PostingCourier.com, and of course, MurderByGaslight.com. All right, Roadsters. Well... Or that I'm... was actually like really interesting. I'm sorry to cut you oh, off. Yeah, go ahead. But it was really interesting that you picked that story and it was a unique experience. I think that um I had covered it before and getting to hear it from someone else telling it. You like that? Yeah, it was fun. This was a week where I didn't like run it by you either. Yeah. I was just like, I got a story. Well, I mean, if you just said my story's in Charleston, I wouldn't have known anyway, so I would have given you like a couple of tantalizing hints. Like it's in Charleston in the 18th century. If you were like oleander tea or spike pits, then Don't drink the tea. You know. <laughs> Fair. So I'm sorry that I cut you off. That's but okay. I had to say that. I appreciate it. I'll take any compliment wherever I can get it. Well, with that being said, Roadsters. We shall take a wee break. And we'll be right back. Eden has a wonderful paranormal story, so he told tells me. Maybe yes. it's something I was thinking about covering. Who knows? Maybe. I don't know. Oh, my God. We'll find out. And we're back. We're back. I have my paranormal story for I'm you. excited. We're not going far. Yeah? My story for this week takes place in Charleston, South <gasps> Carolina. Charleston. Which, to a native, should be no surprise, seeing as this is an old city for sure being established in 1670. 
I'm glad our facts align. Yeah. That would have been embarrassing. (laughs) Its natives well know all about the city's haunted happenings, which are a lot, by the way. I gathered that like when I was like trying to find out more about Charleston, the city, like so many ghost tours, oh, yeah. like so oh, many, yeah. so many cool history ghost tours. Uh, it's one of the most haunted cities in the country. Charleston also had a high population, which is estimated at 136,208, making it the most populous city in the state of South Carolina. It's also large in size at 127.5 square miles. That is big. Charleston is honestly one of the most beautiful cities that I've ever had the pleasure of visiting. When you're in downtown Charleston, there's all these beautiful old buildings, and it just has a certain charm that I can't quite explain. It's just so colorful. The buildings are all brightly painted. There's palm trees lining the streets. It's just all around jaw-dropping. It also has some really great food as well. And I don't know if I've talked about this before on here, but I do love my food. (laughs) If you want to go to one of the coolest, not to mention most haunted cities in the South, I highly recommend you check out Charleston. My story takes place somewhere I wish I would have visited, but I went there with family and didn't really have much say on the itinerary. Fair. Uh, This place has everything. History, tragedy, and of course, restless spirits. This is the story of the Old Exchange and Provost Dungeon. I almost did the Old City Jail, which is where Lavinia Lavinia Fisher Fisher. was. Yeah, that's where they see her ghost. But I, you know, skipped it. Oh, and the Lavinia Fisher haunting thing was basically just that she haunts the jail. That's all they really said about it. People have seen her spirit just roaming around. Hmm. There was nothing really different about it. That's it. Anyway, now on to the Old Exchange and Provost Dungeon. Okay. To look at the Old Exchange and Provost Dungeon, you'd never guess it was one of the most awful prisons around. I know, I seem to be developing a thing for prison stories. I have lady poisoners and lady criminals in general. You have prisons, mm-hmm. reformatories. I like it. Yeah, we have we have themes, I guess. Anyway, it looks more like a really nice government building or old college building and had obviously undergone renovation and revitalization. There was another jail in Charleston that I wanted to cover, fittingly called the Old City Jail, like we just discussed, but I fell in love with this one because of its crazy history. The place was built between 1767 and 1771 and is located on East Bay and Broad Streets, East Bay being one of the most picturesque streets in town. It is currently a museum run by the Daughters of the American Revolution and became a National Historic Landmark in 1973. The Old Exchange is considered to be one of the three most important buildings to be built during the colonial era, along with Philadelphia's Town Hall and Boston's, I don't know how to pronounce that. Finial? Yes. Thank you. Finial Hall. It's just a very weird way to spell something, but okay, Boston. I believe it's French. Yeah. Okay, French people. (laughs) Why do you got so many extra I's and E's in there? (laughs) Right. This place was built in the Georgian style by architect William Rigby Naylor. To understand the beginnings of this building, you'd have to understand a little bit about Charleston. Back in the 18th century, Charleston quickly became the South's largest port. So they needed something to facilitate this need for imports and exports. That's why this building was made originally 
and it was called the Exchange and Custom House. Okay. For anyone who doesn't know what a custom house is, because I sort of did, but only from context clues over the years of hearing it, I never really looked it up to make sure. But it's a place that can facilitate the import and export of goods, as well as a place where ships are cleared to leave the country. Yeah, so it's kind of like when people import things, they go through any kind of like customs taxes there. Yes. They say, what's on your ship? What's What are you bringing into the country? What are you taking out? Would you have anything to declare? That yeah. sort of deal. Uh, at this time, it was also used as a marketplace as well as a meeting place. Another really cool part of its history is during the whole deal with the Tea Act of 1773, which I will break down for you since I'm sure a lot of our listeners have been out of school for a long time. Please do. Because I know I learned about this in grade school and then again in like ninth grade history. So It rings a dusty, dusty bell. Yeah, exactly. A dusty liberty bell. <laughs> um, so the Tea Act of 1773 was something that happened where the British East India Company had way too much tea and way too little money. So they decided to be assholes about things and decided to ship some tea over to the colonies because, remember, we're still part of Great Britain at this point. So they wanted to get rid of this tea and tax the shit out of it. So they send out all this tea to us. This falls under the Townsend duties. Okay. Which were England's way of keeping us in line and making us pay them taxes, even though we were on our own for the most part otherwise. Basically, the whole thing was to rob us blind through taxation while also trying to keep us loyal to the crown. This is where uh, we also get the famous quote, no taxation without representation. Mm. Anyway, I'm not going to get into the Boston Tea Party, but yeah, that was a big part of it too. And now that I've given you too much background information for my <laughs> one sentence I'm about to say, <laughs> please remember that you love me for being thorough. So basically, there were protests about the taxes in South Carolina, specifically Charleston. Makes sense. It's another like big port city. Yeah. They thought it was utter bullshit because they weren't getting anything out of it. So why should we pay taxes to England? And in 1774, they stored some of the confiscated tea here. So instead of selling it, they just hid it away in the custom house. Fuck you, East India Company. They're just like, we don't want your tea, Britain. We can get better tea. But then Britain's all just like, no, have our tea. You can only have our tea. We our are... tea is the only thing that exists. We are tea. We are tea. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I think of England, I think of tea. So mm -hmm. kind of works. The building was used during the Revolutionary War, which is probably going to be where the majority of the hauntings will come from. It was also used by the British as a barracks, and they also used the basement for a prison. Okay. Hence the dungeon. Yes, that's the dungeon portion. The basement is all brick and looks really cool, so I suggest that everyone take a look at some pictures online. Perhaps we'll add them to our website. We shall if we ever update it again. I actually recently updated it. Okay, good. <laughs> so anyway, the state legislature's state house was destroyed, I believe, in the war, and they actually used this spot for meetings after that in 1788. When George Washington came to Charleston in 1791, they used the second floor to host a grand ball in his honor. That's pretty cool. The building ended up being used as a post office for a time, and that's one huge impressive post office. Because like I said, this looks very stately. It looks mm -hmm. very, you know. Very Georgian. Yes. 
Jumping ahead to 1879, the building had ceased uh, to be used as a custom house due to a new one being built a few blocks away. So they were just kind of like, I'm going to go hang out with my cool new friends. I don't need you anymore. I can't stand your face. Bye forever. (laughs) During the Civil War, which was from 1861 to 1865, the building became badly damaged by artillery fire. So I guess that's why the locals didn't want to play with it anymore. It also You ugly now. Exactly, yeah. It also didn't fare well uh, in an earthquake that took place in 1886. So huh. that kind of didn't help either. The Daughters of the American Revolution, which is a group for women who can directly trace their lineage back to important figures from the Revolutionary War, got a hold of the place in 1913 and still own it today. When given the deed to the building... Their job was basically to care for it and keep it up with it and keep it for its historical significance. The second floor of the building has been used as office space for federal agencies since 1917, while the main floor has been used for the Daughters of the American Revolution's meetings. It's a pretty pimpin' meeting house. Yeah, it is. The basement is open for tours as the British Provost Dungeon. Although this place has had an extensive history serving the British, United States, the Confederacy, and local government, the bulk of what I want to talk about is this prison. Before the old exchange, the location was actually a half-moon battery made of brick along with its own prison below. Wait, so there's a prison below the basement? The prison, uh, no, the prison is the basement. Ah, so like the battery is built on top. Yes, So it's the same prison, more or less, that stands there today. This was the main line of defense in Charleston, or as it was called at this point, Charlestown. The battery was raised in 1768 to make way for the old exchange. This prison actually housed some pirates in its day. Yes, pirates. You heard me Mm -hmm. right. And not those modern ones in Somalia with machine guns either. I'm talking like real, like, army hearties, pirates. (laughs) It said, although this is probably just legend, that it housed Blackbeard. Oh. One legendary pirate who we are certain that it held was Stead Bonnet. Stead Bonnet? Yeah. Steed Bonnet? Steed Bonnet. Steed, Stead, I don't know. S-T-E-D-E? I think it was Steed. Okay, I watched a video where they said Stead, so I wasn't sure. We'll say Stead. We'll say whatever. So anyway, who cares? <laughs> so Bonnet was a plantation owner from Barbados and went by the nickname of the Gentleman Pirate. So not a gentleman farmer, a gentleman pirate. Yes, this is our first gentleman pirate that we've had. Oh, spicing it up a little bit. Gentleman can be anything. (laughs) (laughs) He had a 70-man crew of other pirates who probably knew more what they were doing than he did, and he had a ship called the Revenge. He, unfortunately for him didn't really know much about being a pirate since he was just this wealthy landowner before this and not a seaman at all. The character of Jack Sparrow is actually loosely based on him as well as Blackbeard. Hmm. As far as the Blackbeard story goes, he supposedly blockaded the city and took a bunch of the townsfolk hostage until the town officials agreed to a ransom. What was the ransom, you ask? Medicine to treat his venereal diseases. Yep. So Bonnet apparently teamed up with Blackbeard and also terrorized the town until captured around Cape Fear, not the movie. (laughs) Uh, Bonnet was originally not housed in the prison. 
but in the house of the local marshal before trying to escape by dressing in drag. Isn't that something like straight out of like the Pirates of the Car- Caribbean? I think Caribbean so. Hmm. I think so. So they might have just taken that story. I can see Jack Sparrow in drag. Just saying. I could. I mean, he wears enough eyeliner already, so. He was subsequently recaptured after trying to escape dressed as a woman. Uh, and he was jailed, tried, and then he was executed via hanging. <sighs> Not a pirate's life for me, please. Nope. The most famous execution to take place here, though, would have to be that of Isaac Hayne. Hayne was a very wealthy man with a ton of properties throughout the South, totaling 6,377 acres collectively. Dang. So that's a lot of property. During the war, he became a militia captain, but ended up siding with the British, sort of, in order to not lose his land. He basically told them, hey, look, I'm going to throw my lot in with you blokes as long as it is good for me. <laughs> if the tides turn and the colonists are favored in this war, I'm just going to go right back. So in his defense, he did tell them ahead of time that he was going to switch sides again once it stopped being convenient, which he did later on after a few American victories over the British, but was later himself captured and tried for treason against the crown. Hmm. He was imprisoned in the dungeon and the English decided to make an example of him. He knew he was going to die at this point, and he begged to see his children again, but was denied and then publicly hanged, an event for which there was a huge turnout. Apparently, people were shoulder to shoulder. It's like Ned Stark. Yeah. Except not honorable. Not honorable. Because I'm like Mr. McSwitchy Sides. (laughs) McSwitchy Sides, yes. That's his new name. (laughs) I honestly wonder if... People back then were just like, hey there, any plans for the weekend? Oh, I don't know. I might go watch some hangings if it isn't too crowded. It'll be nice for the children to get out of the house and do something fun for a change. That is like not a stretch. Yeah, I think that's just how the world worked. Little weird. So the article that I found this story on, which was from uh, bulldogtours.com, if I remember correctly, talked about how people were horribly tortured in this dungeon which intrigued me to no end but i clicked through about four pages of search results and they all just referred to it as unspeakable torture Hmm. but didn't go into any detail so i unfortunately don't have any information there for you guys email us if you know anything and we'll touch upon it in a future episode plus give you a shout out of course well eden it was unspeakable you can't certainly can't type about it and we can't speak about it yeah that's true i guess it remains unspoken. <laughs> it's unspoken for a reason, jackass. That's what they're telling me. <laughs> so one disturbing fact that speaks to the way the prisoners were treated here is that they would leave dead bodies just to rot in their cells. Gross. Yeah. No, that No. Yeah, that's unsanitary and horrible for anyone living just to smell all that nasty decaying flesh. Nope. And it's very disrespectful to the dead. Yep. Ugh. But they didn't care about that. Clearly. Yeah. Back then, the British were kind of assholes. So perfidious English. Yeah. It was just like, whoa. Yeah. So they just really didn't care. They were like, well, you kind of went against the crown. So nope. So because of everything being below sea level, because you don't see a lot of basements when you're that close to the water. Yeah, no. So it's kind of tough to make one. The dungeon would flood pretty regularly. 
and several prisoners drowned while being held there. That's horrible. Yeah. These people were chained to the walls with no real means of escape. So just being chained there and watching the water fill up and up and up until you drowned must be terrible. Since we can't talk about the delightful subject of torture, I guess we'll skip ahead to the paranormal side of things. I feel better about that already, as much as I am scared of ghosts. Okay, well, you're going to feel real great in a second. (laughs) (laughs) First off, screams, cries, wails, and moans can be heard in the basement dungeon coming from seemingly nowhere. Some of the chains can be seen moving and shaking on their own. Well, that's spooky for sure. Yep. Uh, Typical haunting stuff like cold spots and orbs can be seen throughout and felt throughout. These ghosts can be quite grabby as well. I knew it. I freaking knew it. I'm like, when are they going to start touching me? Exactly. They will. They just want to touch you. As many people have reported being touched, pushed, or have felt hands wrapping around their necks. Ugh, it's creepy and rude. Yep. Respect my personal space ghosts. There's God. A bubble ghosts, okay? Exactly. Six feet away, don't you know? <laughs> Upstairs, people have seen what they assume are just tour guides or other workers dressed in period attire, because that's how the workers dress. But when they go to speak to them, they just vanish. <gasps> yeah. Oh, my God. I don't... Mm. one story i'm assuming from someone who worked there said quote i started to get changed into my outfit when suddenly i heard footsteps someone walking to the door and then walking away and i just thought it was someone outside waiting for me to hurry up so i quickly got changed and stabbed outside and there was nobody end quote yeah i don't like that Isaac Hayne is said to haunt the cell where he was held before his execution, as well as the room that they named for him. They named a room after him? Yeah, they named a room after him. Like a prison cell or like a... I don't know. I didn't... Hmm. I couldn't tell, so I didn't want to write about it because I wasn't sure. I'm sorry I asked you the question. No, it's fine. I appreciate the question anyway. (laughs) Even though you made me look stupid. Thanks, Nicole. I'll edit it out. You don't have to. It's fine. So doors are also said to open and close on their own, and I think that might be Isaac's doing because it's normally around his room. Mm. That's all I could really find, but it's certainly enough to qualify as one of the most haunted places in a city filled with haunted places. If you want to go there yourself, they do offer tours. They are open every day from 9 to 5, just like that movie and song by... uh, Dolly Parton? Yes. Haunted night (laughs) to... What a way to do some spooking. <laughs> so adults can get in for $10, children 6 to 12 for 5 and kids under 6 for free. Start that trauma. No cost to you. <laughs> exactly. You want your child to shit its pants for free? Go we, for it. We got you covered. <laughs> they also have a like discount thing for people who are 65 and older, for students, and for military personnel. So, what do you think, Nicole? So, it has all the things that are scary about prisons, plus it's underground, plus it's super old. Yes. It's someplace I would go. In the day with many other people. Exactly. I would <laughs> go between nine and five. Yes. And I, I think the thing that like kind of is the most off-putting to me in a weird way is the seeing somebody in colonial garb and assuming they work there. That's the part that scares you the most. Not the being strangled, 
I but, mean, I, I, that's neither here nor there. I know uh, I am at museums and I get turned around quite easily. Yeah, okay. And I am that first person to be like, excuse me. So I think if I were to go there, my ghost encounter would be, excuse me, where'd you go? Uh, they just wanted to get away from you. Is there a door over there? What's happening? <laughs> Is that an exit? Where's the bathroom? Yeah. So, I mean, that wouldn't be like the thing that would freak me out. It's the choking. It's definitely the choking that I would like to avoid. That's got to be super weird too, though, if that like happens on a tour. Yeah. Ugh. Well, I mean, we have talked about other haunted places where stuff like that has happened on tours. So I feel like a lot of the haunted places we've talked about where like choking is like a thing or like like you feel like you're being restrained is often like hotels. Though. Yeah. Am I am I like completely out of sorts? To no, say there that? was um, there was a lot of that in a lot of the hotels that we covered. Um, the one thing that I'm thinking of um, for like the prison was, oh, crap, which prison was it? The one with the paintball fight and everything. Oh, Trans Allegheny. Yeah. Oh, it was a hospital. That's right. No, it wasn't Trans Allegheny. It was, yes. Yes, it was Trans Allegheny. You're right. Okay. Yes, it was a hospital, that not a prison. That stuck out to me so much, this painful <laughs> destruction. I know. <laughs> that was a thing, like, I literally laughed when I wrote those notes. But that was one where there's a lot of being touched and choked and scratched and all that stuff. Yeah. I think those are the most alarming kind of manifestations you can encounter, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, I would still, I would still go... And take tour. I would. It's a beautiful building. I have ten dollars. I have ten dollars as well. Ten dollars well spent. (laughs) My sources for this week were Wikipedia, NPS.gov, OldExchange.org, BulldogTours.com, GhostCityTours.com, WalledCityTaskForce.org, CountOnTwo.com, and HauntedHistory.net. So that's it for our show this week. I hope you enjoyed yourself. If you would like to get in contact with us, you can email us at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. If you would like to find us on social media, you can contact us through Facebook or Instagram at Roadside Horror Show or on Twitter at Roadside Horror. You can also stop by our website, which we are dedicated to updating more frequently. (laughs) You can find it at roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. We'd like to thank Yox Rocks Design and E. Massey for our wonderful logo and theme music, respectively. And I guess that's it. So until next time, creep on creeping on. Creepin on. on.